Well, good morning. It is, uh, it is great to see people, not a screen. <laughs> and it's great to especially see a uh, church family. And uh, just uh, wonderful to be here in this, with this opportunity. I was uh, just kind of reminded a, a student of church history. Um, back in the day in the 18th century, a famous preacher by the name of George Whitfield. This was kind of uh, typical for, uh, for someone like him, only uh, didn't have the 21st century technology to meet out in an open field like this and, and share God's word. But uh, so we are, we are uh, grateful for the technology. I know my, uh, my voice is grateful as well. Um, but uh, all right, we're going to uh, take some time uh, this morning and look in a book. Uh, it's a very small book, only three chapters. It is the uh, book of Habakkuk. And uh, I thought the, the book of Habakkuk, and even talking with Pastor Robbie and some of the other pastors uh, in preparation for this, that uh, it's a very timely book, even though it was written uh, in six, around 610 B.C., some of the, uh, the, the subject matter is very, um, very apropos to what uh, we see going on even in our world today. Now, in, in just a moment... Um, Pastor Jeff and Pastor Adam are going to be reading some selected passages from the book. Uh, we're not going to read the entire book, but uh, just some key passages. But I want to take a moment and set that up for us. Um, the name Habakkuk actually means to wrestle or to embrace. So keep that in mind as you hear the word of God written, even throughout the, our, our sharing time, because it's significant as you read the book, you can see how Habakkuk literally wrestles with God. Not unlike some of us sometimes, right? We, we are actually led in on a conversation between the prophet and God, which is, which is very unusual because we're seeing the prophecy develop uh, right before us and uh, we have that recorded. It begins with the prophet crying out to God for, for an answer as to why God's chosen people are allowed to suffer evil and in, and in injustice uh, within its own government, within its own leadership. Sounds familiar, right? Why doesn't God do something about all the stuff that's going on in the world, all the stuff that's going on right in their, in their own country, the anarchy, and the prevalent and, 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 and perverted justice, all of this is, is going on at the time. And so the Lord gives an answer to Habakkuk, and he says this. This, this is really startling. It kind of comes out and grabs you, especially, you know, the past six months or so, right? You wouldn't believe it if I told you. That was God's answer. What are you doing, God? Well, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Think about all that's been going on in the last six months. In the previous six months, would we believe everything that's going on? God's answer is that he's not inactive. He's going to raise up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to be his instruments of judgment against Judah, which was all that was left of the, of the nation at that time. What? Habakkuk's answer to that is, what are you going to do? You're going to raise up our enemy to judge us? They're worse than we are. What's up with that? God, what are, you're, you're too holy for that. You can't, you can't do that. It's primarily what he was, going to, he was saying. And then God answers Habakkuk again, 
and says, unlike the proud and the impetuous Babylonians who will not escape my judgment, they will not escape. Unlike them, you need to live by faith. For God's people, the just, live by faith. That's God's answer. He then tells all the earth to be silent. Then Habakkuk just has to pause and, and, and after experiencing a complete emotional and mental breakdown, that's literally what the passage says, Habakkuk writes an impassioned prayer. It's called a shiginoth. And it, it expresses his strong faith and trust in God and God's character, even though of the impending devastating circumstances that are about to come. With this background... As Pastor Jeff and Adam come and and read the selected passage, I'd like you to listen carefully as the prophet wrestles with God over these very difficult situations. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oh, Lord... How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence there before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, whose march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Are you not everlasting? From everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Wrong spot, sorry. (laughs) That's a good one, though. (laughs) I hear and my body trembles. 
I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. All right. Thank you guys for reading that. And you, you may have noticed uh, Pastor Jeff was the voice of Habakkuk and Pastor Adam the voice of God. So there was no intention in that, just, uh, just the way it worked out. All right. But as we read Habakkuk, as we, as we understand, we, we, we realize that Habakkuk really addresses a question uh, we've all asked, right? How do you make sense out of what's going on in our world? How do we make sense of what's going on perhaps in our own circumstances when all around us things seem to be unraveling? Or somewhere along the line somebody has pulled the proverbial carpet out from under us and we're in a free fall, and we don't understand. When there are things that we, we can't put together, when, when we're scared, when we're anxious, when we're overwhelmed. You see, God works on us in the midst of trouble. We know that because trouble always catches our attention, doesn't it? Trouble always catches our attention. We listen better when trouble hits probably than any other time. What I love about Habakkuk is that it's a, it's a direct dialogue between the prophet and God. We, we get to listen in on this conversation. Now, it's a very troubling conversation, to say the least. Habakkuk, however, is very real about his struggle. You know, we need that kind of shocking, um, honest message that Habakkuk brings. Now, Habakkuk was never disrespectful to God, but he was very real before God. He wasn't afraid to ask hard questions. But where does your heart go when life makes no sense at all? When anxious thoughts seem to take over your heart in, in the uncertainties of, of even a, a pandemic, of social unrest? When God doesn't seem near, when, when he... When, God doesn't even seem fair, at least in our interpretation, when, when from our vantage point, God seems even inactive, when it feels like maybe our prayers just kind of bounce back to us. Where do I go with all the mix of emotions? I can't question God. No, no, no. I, 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 no, no, I can't question God. That, that wouldn't be spiritual. That would be disrespectful. That might even be blasphemous. And that may be true. That may be true. Then, then, then what do I do? How do I handle that? How do I handle with the fact that I, I feel overwhelmed right now that I, I can't connect the dots? Things don't make sense. God seems so distant. It's exactly what the, the prophet Habakkuk was, was wrestling with. He was wrestling with those questions, some of the very questions that, that we have 
Uh, he was a, a man of God, but he had questions about what God's providence was up to. What, what is God doing in this world? What is he doing in, in my country? What is he doing in, in my life? What I'd like to do today is consider three things uh, to draw out from this passage. Um, and that is, one is, is it right to question Almighty God? Is it right to question Almighty God with all of those things going on? Then I want to look at another thought, and that is the danger of letting our circumstances define who God is. And then, thirdly, I'd like to take some time to look at um, understanding the biblical concept of a lament. All of that's going to connect in just a few minutes, but that's where we're going this morning. The first part is, is it right to question Almighty God? Now, if we were honest, we would all, we would all probably have to say, yes, I, I, I don't know if it's really right, but I've done it. I've done it. How many of us have gotten angry with God? How many of us have wrestled with God similar to what we have recorded here? But let, me, let me just say this right off the bat. We have a God. We have a God who, his word says, sympathizes with our weaknesses. Hebrews chapter 4. Our God sympathizes with our weaknesses. What do I mean by that? Well, well consider, consider another prophet, uh, just a little, lived a little bit before Habakkuk. His name was Isaiah. And Isaiah was, was overwhelmed by this thought of God. God speaking here. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. Now think about that for a second. No wonder I struggle with what God is up to. He is so much, his thoughts are so much wider and grander than mine, and has the whole perspective. Here's, here's the idea. In God's thinking, he knows, he knows every cause and effect relationship that's going to impact the entire world. Every, every cause, every effect, every cause. You know, he puts all of that together because this is happening over here, and this is happening over here, and this is happening in this part of the world, and this is happening in your world, and this is happening in your life. He brings all of that together to what the Bible calls to work out good. Only he, you know why all things work together for them that, call, for them that are called by the Lord? Why do all things work together for good? Because he knows the outcome of every situation, but we're in the middle of it and we can't see it. He knows the cause and effect of everything. But yet at the same time, he sympathizes with our weaknesses because he knows we're not God. Sometimes we try to be God, but he knows we're not. So we are strongly encouraged by the Lord himself to speak openly from our hearts. The one thing he asks is that we remember to whom we are speaking to. I may not know his ways. I can't comprehend all of what God is doing. That's too big. That's too big. I may not know his ways, but here's 
Will my faith allow me to trust his heart? I may not know his ways, but the just shall live by faith. And if the just live by faith, they trust God's heart. Perhaps that's why one of, um, one of uh, Jesus' disciples says, Lord, help my unbelief. That's maybe a daily prayer request for me sometimes, right? If we're honest, at some point in our relationship with God, we too have asked these two questions that Habakkuk asked here in, uh, in his book. Those two questions are, where are you, God? And what in the world are you doing? Maybe to some degree or another, we've asked those questions. That first question, where are you, God? You know, we, it's like, I've hooked my life to you, God. Are you there? Are you there? But here's, here's the good news. He is. He is. Even when I don't know where God is, he knows where I am. Even though I don't know where God may be, he knows where I am. The strongest words of encouragement from God to all of us is that we're not alone. And not only that, he says, I am with you. You know, that famous passage that many of us have read maybe and go to when we're feeling anxious and overwhelmed, says, be anxious for nothing. And sometimes we, we feel very condemned by that. I, I, I'm sorry, God, I'm anxious, but I, I, just, I can't help it. I'm just anxious. And we be anxious for nothing. It's like, uh-oh, now I'm really in trouble from God. I'm, I'm already overwhelmed. Now I'm anxious because I'm overwhelmed. And now I'm upset with, now God's upset with me because I'm being anxious and I'm not trusting you. No, 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 no. Go back a verse. It says in verse 5 of Philippians 4, it says, the Lord is near be anxious for nothing. It's actually meant to comfort us. We don't have to be anxious because the Lord is near. The Lord is with us. It's like as a parent, when you comfort your child, it's okay. Daddy's here. Mommy's here. You don't have to be afraid. That's the, that's the kind of structure we have here. Where are you, God? I'm right here with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's nothing you can do or fail to do that's ever going to cause me to reject you. That's what God says. And that's what he was reminding Habakkuk of. Even though what he was about to do is going to be pretty scary, God promises to be with us. The Lord is near. What in the world are you doing is the second question. And that's a really important question. It's a question that we sometimes answer questioning, you know, where that leads to, if we don't answer that correctly, it doesn't lead to a good place. It leads to another question kind of underneath, more subtle. It's not just, what in the world are you doing? If we don't answer that, we're left with, are you good? Is God good? See, if I don't answer that question, what in the world are you doing? I'm being answered by, by questioning the goodness and the faithfulness of God. In fact, we're reminded too by a, a 19, a 18th, a 20th century writer, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. 
what you think about God is the most important thing about you, he said. And, and that is very important when we're dealing with situations that are overwhelming, where we don't know where, what God is up to, when we're beginning to question, is God really good? That's when we're having what we call a faith crisis. Questioning the goodness of God only leads us to a crisis of faith. And what is a crisis of faith? When we begin to doubt God's goodness. Let me tell you this. That is Satan's MO. That is Satan's MO. To get, un, to get at us and to cause us to question God is to question his goodness. That's what he did with Eve in the garden. With the first temptation, one of the things he did was get Eve to question the goodness of God. What is God keeping from you? In fact, we, other, other people of God have struggled with this through the centuries. Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, he called God a deceptive stream in his struggle with, with his mission. With his mission, he was just frustrated with God, sinfully frustrated with God. And he said, God, I'm doing everything you tell me to do, and yet these people aren't changing. You have become to me like a deceptive stream. What is he talking about? He's talking about the, the, the ancient, or the, or the wadis uh, in, in ancient Israel. When it rained in the mountains, it could be sunny here, but then because it rained in the mountains, all of a sudden these wadis would fill up with water and, and, and actually drown people. And they didn't even expect it coming because it's bright and sunny, but this water came from the mountains. And God was deceptive like this. You see, in our struggle in questioning God, we can go to a dark place like that if we're not careful and have our own faith crisis. And by the way, God's words immediately to Jeremiah was, use the word repent. Change your thinking about me. Change your thinking about me. Oftentimes, our struggles reveal what we really believe about God, don't they? Don't they? Sometimes we think God is, God is angry with us. In fact, I, I've, I've, I've asked many counselees this question, many people in my life. I've done kind of like a public survey too uh, and, and asked, what, what is it? If, 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 if you were asked this question, what is it that God, what emotion comes to mind when God thinks about you? What, com what emotion comes to God's mind when he thinks about you? You know what the number one answer is from people? He's angry with me or he's disappointed with me. Now, if we think God is disappointed with us, how is that going to affect our faith, our life, what we think about, how we handle struggles? God is not disappointed. In Christ, there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ. God is not angry. All his anger was, was directed toward the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He is the propitiation or the satisfaction for all of God's judgment against all of our sin was directed to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, he's not angry with you. You can mess up. You can mess up. God's not angry. Why? Because our sins past, present, and future, all of the judgment against us has been meted out. Now, when, when you think about God in that light, that there is no condemnation, that gives us confidence to grow and change. That impacts us. 
Not God is out to get me. God is out to grow me. Second thing we want to look at here is the danger, because it just ties right into the next thing. It's the danger of letting our circumstances define God for us. What will we use to define God? See, the temptation that all of us have is letting our circumstances define God for us. It kind of works like this. If, if this is happening and this is happening, how could, God, how could God allow this and this and this? Or why would this happen and this? If there's a God, why would this, why would this? It's that, it's that ancient kind of like, look at my circumstances. And if this is happening, then God must be defined by my circumstances. And God is not good. We got it backwards. We got it backwards. And that's why Habakkuk was called by God to go back to who God was. Not just look at his circumstances. Yeah, he had a question. God, I, I can't believe, what are you doing allowing the Babylonians to be our judgment? They're worse than we are. Even as, even as, you, even as you think of things in our 21st century, what is God up to in America? No surprise to God, he's up to his redemptive plan. But we... <laughs> Eight months ago, we would be thinking, nah, I can't believe what he's doing. God is a redemptive God. He's up to something good because he's good. I don't know what that is completely yet. I see little bits of it, what God is doing in the, in the result of everything that's been going on. But God is good. God is wise. He is in control. He is merciful. He is gracious. He's up to something and it's good. Why do I know that? Because he's good. I'm going to stand back like Habakkuk. I'm going to wait, and I'm going to see him do his thing. Now, some of it's going to be really scary. Some of it's going to be definitely out of my control, and I don't like that. I don't know about you, but I don't like things being out of my control. It's scary when you can't buy toilet paper. And it's funny, something as little as that, insignificant as that is, can be a big deal. We don't like to be out of control, but God is not our circumstances. One's view of God shapes how we handle crisis. In fact, counseling, biblical counseling, a ministry of which I've been involved with most of my ministry life and something that we're, we're continuing to get the groundwork laid here in our church family, biblical counseling is all about connecting people to who God really is. Because part of our problem and part of our struggles is we have circumstances which we can't control. And then we have our view of God, which we can inform our view of God. We can do that. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. See, what we want to do is we want to harmonize. You know, when life seems out of control, we want to harmonize both God's sovereignty and we say, oh, God's sovereign. Yeah, he's in control. Now, let me ask you this. Is that always comforting to you? Realistically? Just God's sovereignty all by itself? God's in control. Now, I, you know, think about Habakkuk. God's in control. 
And the Babylonians are going to come and capture the city, burn the city down, take you into captivity, and carry you away for 70 years. Oh, God's in control. Now, we can fill in our own little version of that. But no, God is in control. I'm thankful for that. He's not taken back by that. He's not surprised, but he's also merciful. He's also good. He's also gracious. He's also wise. He's all of those things all the time, all at once. And to understand what God is doing, that's what our faith is in. You see, we break it down this way. Sovereignty and wisdom or sovereignty and caution. Faith is what I have to put my faith in God's control because I can't control it. So I leave that in God. When I try to control what only God controls, you know where it leads me? I get anxious. I get worried. I get overwhelmed because I can't fix things that only God can fix or that God is in control of. And what I need to do is surrender that control or give that over that control to him. That's what we call trust. You know what trusting God is? Trusting God is giving him or surrendering or that control over to him and not taking it back. And then there's wisdom. Wisdom is what I can't control. Wisdom is what I should know and what I should do. See, those are, those are things that I can, I can do. You know, in this, in this pandemic, um, you know, how do you, how do you balance or harmonize wisdom and control when, you know, the whole thing about, um, uh, you know, especially early on when, you know, we didn't know anything about this virus and, you know, seeing everything on TV and all of the rest of that, it's scary stuff. People don't even want to leave their house, understandably so. Now, I'm a, I'm a higher-risk person because I'm a cardiac patient. My wife is a higher-risk person because she's got some extreme asthma issues. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you try to live in both wisdom but not be controlled by fear at the same time and yet trust God? And we have to harmonize faith and wisdom. Who is God? I know this, that my days are numbered. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a good way. It says in Psalm 139 that all the days that God has ordained for me are laid out while I was in my mother's womb. It's all there. So I'm not going any sooner. Yet at the same time, I'm still going to be wise. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to do the things that are, I'm not going to tempt God or test God that way so we balance faith and wisdom because they're not divorced from one another. Faith and wisdom are intricately um, welded together. Consider anxiety. When, we, when we're anxious, you know, we as worriers act as if uh, we might be able to control the uncontrollable. Central to our worries is the illusion that we can control things. The illusion of control lurks inside our anxiety. Anxiety and control are two sides of the same coin. When we can't control something, we worry about it. Thirdly, understanding the biblical concept of lament. Where is this all going? How do I talk to God? How do I talk to God without disrespecting God, without 
having a bad attitude, a faithless attitude, or, or what? How do I, how, you know, the ancient people of God, the people of the scriptures, in particular in the economy of the Old Testament, they learned something called lament, lamenting. Um, and we have a, we, we see this throughout, especially uh, the book of um, Psalms. There, you see, there's a, there's a difference. You know, when we're wrestling with God, there's a difference between an accusation and a lament. You know, compare the attitude of Jonah. Jonah was a grumpy, Christ, was a grumpy believer. Some would say they don't even know if he was a believer. I don't know that. But he was just grumpy. I don't want to do that, God. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to the Ninevites. They're bad people. I mean, he hated the Ninevites. He didn't want to go there. And he didn't, he didn't even like the fact that they all, you know, there was a revival in Nineveh. <clears throat> and he went up and he pouted. And then the book of Jonah just kind of ends. Boop, like, oh, that's dark. Well, when we don't get a handle on who God is, <clears throat> yeah, life gets dark. And then there's Habakkuk. Habakkuk learned the skill of lament. You see, venting is not lamenting. I just thought of that. Venting is not lamenting. You know, we don't just vent everything to God, uncontrolled, you know, ah, I can't. And maybe we've been there. But that's not lamenting. You see, an accusation is, I can't believe in a God who will fill in the blank. We take something that's very hard and assume the worst of God's character or abandon him altogether. A lament, however, a lament is this. A lament is a sincere prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's a sincere prayer in pain. We're hurting. But it eventually leads to trust. Or we might even say worship for that matter. We find laments throughout the scriptures, poetic books, as people express their suffering to God. There's a whole book, there's a book, Lamentations. That's a perfect lament of the prophet Jeremiah, but also in all the, throughout the Psalms. The ancient handbook of worship is built on suffering and wrestling with God. Psalm 13, that's one I'd, I'd encourage you. Read that tonight, read that today. Psalm 13 is a perfect example of a biblical lament. We see in the Psalms that pain can be a platform for worship. And that's what we see even here in the book of Habakkuk. He took his pain, wrestled with God, sought out who God really is, put his mind and heart on who God really is, and he ended up worshiping him in chapter 3. That's why the title, From Worry to Worship. To be able to lament provides a place for a believer to wrestle through all the conflicting emotions and truth. We need a place to go where we can take these emotions, the heartaches, all of the emotions, whether it's anger, fear, anxiety, discouragement, whatever it is, 
we need a place to go. Lamenting gives us a place to move from the emotion and the feelings toward the truth. Scripture uses honest language for a personal lament that, that helps us to help one another process these intense emotions associated with suffering and hurt. A lament moves us toward active trust in the Lord. You see, a lament is not to, um, a lament doesn't just uh, cause us to vent and go nowhere with it. You know, sometimes we think, you know, venting, well, I feel better, got that off my chest. No, that's not going to work. That's not a biblical lament um, at all. And okay, preacher's nightmare. His notes are all mixed up. <laughs> That's all right. We'll figure this out. So what is a lament? What does a lament look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. And in a minute, I'll tell you. Because what I wrote down was important. I can do it from memory, but... A lament has basically three characteristics to it. Three characteristics. And they are. Here they are. All right. There's three characteristics um, or three elements of a lament. As we address God in our lament, use his name. Use his name. One of the names of God. You know, Elohim, great and mighty God. Maybe that's what we need to park our thinking on. El Shaddai. You know, what the names of God, uh, the names of Christ. You know, how long, O oh Lord, he says, will I call for help? He called him Lord, Adonai. Verse 2 of, uh, of the first chapter there. Then... Then in verse 12 of the first chapter, he says this, which is really important. Not only use his name, but notice what he does. He personalizes God. Art thou not from everlasting to everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One. You know what that is? That's covenant language. That's promise language. That's language of intimacy. We don't speak of a God in an abstract, impersonal tense. No, he is our God. It's very personal. In the song we sang, Christ and Christ alone, there's a one phrase in there, I am his and he is mine. Park your thinking on that. Meditate on that. Saturate your brain with that, that idea that <laughs> I am his and he is mine. <clears throat> it's intimacy language. My wife, Connie, I introduce her as my wife, not the wife. Hi, this is the wife, Connie. That sounds weird, doesn't it? No, it, she's my wife. Now, that speaks of possessiveness, not in a bad way, but in a good way. She doesn't belong to anyone else the way she belongs to me. And by the way, that goes both ways. That's what God is saying. So he's my God, my Savior, my Redeemer, my salvation, my light. See, okay, God, God is not distant. He's intimate. He's intimate. 
So we speak to him in, in that kind of tone, using a, his personal name. Next, we ask in hope. Notice what he says in verse, verse 2. I will stand my guard and station myself on the rampart. What is a rampart? It's a tower. It's a watchtower. And obviously, in a watchtower, you can see everything coming and going. You can see who's coming from a far distance. You know what this is about? It's about perspective. Our lament not only is personalized God with God, not only is, in, is realizing we have an intimate relationship with God, but that also we can get perspective. We get perspective. Biblical hope is all about perspective. <clears throat> For example, listen to Paul. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. He's looking ahead. He's gaining perspective. What's going on now, as bad as it is, doesn't compare to the glory that we're one day going to experience. My suffering seems huge until I compare it to the glory that will be. So where does hopelessness come from? Hopelessness is an unwillingness to view time as God does. It enters in when we look for hope and reward in this present age, even though God has called us to live with a view toward eternity. So we're living for today, basically. We're trying to find all the joy, everything we can find in today's world. So when they take the toilet paper away from us, it's bad. No, there are far worse things that have happened to, to us, right? That doesn't compare to the glory that we will one day enjoy with him. So we, we ask in hope. We personalize, we ask in hope, and a lament thirdly expresses trust and praise. I love the resolve of Habakkuk. In fact, this is one of my favorite passages. Listen to his words. Listen to his words. You see, the lament moves him from the complaint, from the struggle, gives him a place to cry out to God, to think about who God is, to think about his relationship to God, to think about the fact that he, he is my God, which produces hope, which gives us a view to the future, which gives us confidence. And as a result, what do we do? We praise God. In the Hebrew context, in the Hebrew language, the idea of exalting God is one translation uses the word exalt, is the idea of spinning. In other words, it's jumping up and spinning around with great joy. When we come to the, the realization of who God is and who God is for me, it's amazing. So he inserts something very important. In this phrase, he goes, the fig tree should not blossom, nor there be fruit on the vine. The produce, no, the produce of the olive will fail. Uh, the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. You know, if you're in an agricultural society or economy, that means it's all over. That's all over. You see, God may remove everything in order that he becomes everything. Scary truth. Pain disrupts normal. 
supposed to disrupt normal because it's supposed to make us feel the need for help. Then he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take take joy in God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And then he says to the choir master with stringed instruments, the two of the most important words ever written, in my view, two of the most important words ever written for us are these words, but God. But God. I have all of this mess over here. Everything's out of control. I can't make sense out of anything. But God. And you know that phrase is two simple words packed with such dynamic truth. It'll change your life. But God. How does God, knowing God, knowing him personally, intimately, knowing, growing in your knowledge of who he is, how does that impact the way you view the mess that we all live in? Or maybe the mess that your life has to face every day, whatever that difficulty might be, how does knowing God change that perspective? But God. Try this next time. You know, I would, I would come home sometimes from from ministry and, and work and maybe watching the news or something like that. and wa- I don't know, at the beginning of this thing, uh, I was just watching the news all the time, watching all the reports, watching the president's uh, address every day. And, you know, uh, you know my heart was kind of going, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen here? Now imagine going through everything without that phrase, but God. That's what makes all the difference in the world and what that means. That's why, as a believer, we see things differently than our world. And that, by the way, it's, the, it's that conjunction, but God, that conjunctional phrase, but God, is what changed Habakkuk's view. I can rejoice in the God of myself, because what does he make me do? He makes me walk on high places. He gives me perspective that the world can't. And the world doesn't know. And because I have that, I rejoice. I rejoice. Because God gives me his perspective. Let's pray. Precious Father, as we bow our hearts before you, we, we are deeply thankful that it is permissible with respect and reverence to bring our questions pertaining to what you are doing to you. Sometimes it's not evident to us what's going on, especially if we are thrown into suffering for a period of time or, or if it seems our enemies are prospering while, while we're just barely getting by. We see how Habakkuk affirms that you are indeed a sovereign, omnipotent God who has all things under control and desires to be with us. We just need to be still and know You indeed are at work. You are he who says and he who keeps his promises. 
You will punish the wicked. If not today, we know one day. Even when we cannot see, you are still on the throne of the universe. Lord, help us to stay focused on this. As Habakkuk said, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Enable us, O God. May we trust you as we go on the heights. You are taking us to those higher places where we are set apart from the world. Sometimes the way we have to go to get there is through suffering and sorrow. Therefore, we ask, enable us to rest in you and trust you and come out where you want us to be. We pray in the lovely name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. Amen.